And so, Casey takes the last long walk to the clubhouse. It's goodbye to the polo grounds, farewell to the old, and welcome to the new. Shea Stadium, the new home of the Mets, to be ready for the opening day of the 1964 season. Here is a stadium that has been designed to be the greatest ever built for baseball, with a perfect view of the playing field from every seat. Not a column, pillar, or post in the entire park to obstruct the view. 55,000 seats, and nearly all of them within the foul lines. Everything about this stadium has been designed for the comfort and convenience of the fans. A series of ingeniously arranged ramps to avoid jamming of crowds before or after game time. 21 banks of escalators make the long, hard climb to the upper grandstands a thing of the past. There's a subway line that runs right to the ballpark with a pedestrian overpass that leads from the Willits Point IRT station right to the stadium entrance. Bus lines, too, will go directly to the stadium. And nearby is a station of the Long Island Railroad. Next door to the stadium, the New York World's Fair in Flushing Meadows. You name it, this stadium will have it. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well, hello there, friends. How's it going? My name's Tim Hanlon. It's Good Seats Still Available, as you know by now. The curious little podcast that's devoted to this crazy little genre that we've created for ourselves uh, around the world of forgotten sports, that uh, what used to be in professional sports, for that matter. Thanks for coming by. And um, let's see, whose voice was that? Uh, that was a, a young, uh, dapper, and uh, loud-jacketed Lindsey Nelson uh, from the uh, end-of-season 1963 recap of the New York Metropolitan Baseball Club, otherwise known as the New York Mets. Uh, their final year of... Um, a play in the uh, fast dilapidating polo grounds back in the day. And um, what were they getting ready for? Well, you heard it. Lindsay sort of gave you sort of the gleaming future that awaited the New York Mets. And as we'll hear in our conversation with this week's guest, Matthew Silverman, the New York Jets, who were similarly um, ensconced in the polo grounds as uh, the New York Titans, uh, and they, too, undergoing uh, a metamorphosis, I guess, uh, with a new stadium known as Shea Stadium. It wasn't called Shea Stadium at that very moment. I think it was called Flushing Meadows Stadium. Uh, there was also a municipal label in there somewhere as well. Um, but as we'll talk about with our guest this week, Matthew Silverman, the author of Shea Stadium Remembered, the Mets, Jets, and Beatlemania. And that's just three of the many uh, amazing uh, pillars of uh, of history and remembrances of uh, of the I think as over time occurred the more lamentable Shea Stadium, but at the time it was it was literally the future. Um, we get into all the sort of uh, back story as to how uh, this stadium was created in Flushing Queens, um, the roles of 
uh, of various people like um, Walter O'Malley and hemming and hawing about uh, a new stadium being built there for his Dodgers instead of in his in Brooklyn and perhaps precipitating the move to Los Angeles uh, for the Dodgers in the first place. Um, uh, William Shea, a very uh, 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 important character and obviously the namesake of the stadium over time, uh, a lawyer, part of the uh, the backdrop of the Continental League, a conversation we had uh, with the late uh, Russ Buhite on a previous episode. Uh, you remember that uh, when the Dodgers and the uh, then New York Giants left for the West Coast, uh, New York was bereft uh, almost overnight in uh, 1958 of uh, two of their three former baseball clubs. And uh, almost from that day on, uh, Mayor Wagner at the time, um, Robert Wagner and um, a whole host of folks were uh, eager to uh, see if there was an uh, ability to at least replace one of those lost franchises with something else. And the Continental League was certainly part of that mix and, and a New York franchise, Houston, I think, as well. Uh, was sort of part of that. Minneapolis was uh, out the, in the mix. I think Denver was in that mix. Um, and whether it was sort of a, a grand ruse or uh, it was uh, an endeavor that was um, uh, foreseen and blocked ultimately by the National League in their granting of two franchises in Houston and the then-to-come New York Mets, um, intrigue for sure in that. There's also a guy named Robert Moses in the midst of all this stuff. Um the reason why it was uh, Queens uh, is actually goes back to, and and this is not uh, an interview with Robert Caro and, and the powers that be, but that book, uh, for you who don't uh, understand sort of uh, the modern day uh, architectural and geographic uh, and um, civic history of, of New York and why uh, various uh, uh, highways and, and, and uh, the uh, automobile um uh, devotion, if you will, in terms of urban planning uh, exists today and and why you uh, are stuck on the Long Island Expressway all the time when you're going back and forth to Manhattan. Well, Robert Moses is part of that story and then some. And an outsized figure, uh, arguably behind the scenes, he was never really elected, but he was probably the most powerful person at that time in New York City in the area in terms of his decision making when it came to bridges and roads and construction. And of course, in this case, this municipal stadium uh, and the politics that came with all that. that and that's just the, that's just the, the the backstory, friends. We get into with Matthew Silverman in just a few moments, you know, uh, some of the uh, more unique um, uh, memories around this stadium, some of the events, of course, not only the Mets, but the New York Jets as they became um, uh, a powerhouse pretty quickly and by the end of the decade, winning, uh, an NFL championship after the uh, AFL or as part of the AFL merger is that point, the old Joe Namath team and and whatnot. Um, and of course, you can't forget some of the other iconic events, including music and uh, the Pope in in the, uh, visited uh, along the way. But of course, the Beatles, right? In 1964, um, you know, uh, what a year uh, for not only the brand new um, uh, franchises uh, joining uh, this new facility, but also, um, you know, the arrival of the Beatles. Now the Beatles obviously were doing, um, of course the Beatles were in 1965, the stadium opened in 64. Uh, but on August 15th, 1965, uh, iconically, um, the Beatles opened their North American tour there. And, uh, by all accounts, it was, uh, sort of not the 
best acoustic experience. It wasn't sort of, uh, this is sort of the early days, I guess, of sort of the big venues, uh, the big outdoor arena kind of uh, presentations for for uh, rock concerts. But, um, and, and arguably it wasn't even their best show of their tour. Um, but the mania around it, of course, and the excitement and and the conquering of the United States and and being in New York and and all that represents for you know you know the United States is sort of the biggest city and its influence and all that stuff. It's still iconically remembered by even you know Beatles fans uh, of you know current generations uh, who who never knew or understood what Shea Stadium really was. They didn't know Mets from from anything. They didn't know what the American football was about, but they do know Shea Stadium because the Beatles played their first concert there. Um, and that's all part of the history too. And it, it's fascinating. And we love to focus on structures no longer with us. Um, this is really not a show devoted to the Jets or the Mets or uh, even the 1975 season, although we did have a conversation about that um, previous episode, which I highly recommend. Uh, 1975, what a crazy year in the, in the history of Shea Stadium because Yankee Stadium was being refurbished and was out of uh, out of pocket giant stadium in East Rutherford, New Jersey in uh, was not uh, online yet. I don't think it was uh, available until early 1977. So you had four teams, the Mets, the Crosstown Yankees, the homestanding Jets on football and the Yankees domiciled until that point, New York Giants, all four of them playing uh, their games in 1975. And where in the hell? Out of Shea, and as we'll talk about with Matthew in a few moments, um, uh, in in some respects, it, it almost was uh, kind of the beginning uh, of sort of the or the apex, perhaps, uh, and the beginning of the end of uh, of Shea in terms of its uh, modernity, shall we say? Because, um, and we talked about this with Brett Topol in our episode number eighty seven uh, about this nineteen seventy five year. It became a workhorse and 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 certainly fine uh, in, in that regard, but uh, really hard. I think the upkeep and um, you know other stadia uh, approaches were starting to come online that were certainly more modern and more advanced and uh, and that kind of stuff. And Shea, you know, started like a lot of stadiums in their you know in their teens and twenties, uh, start to fade from glory without either uh, renovation, refurbishment, rethinking, or frankly, uh, as occurred finally in the um, in the aughts. Um, demolition and replacement. And now City Field, literally just in the shadow of the old Shea. But we're going to talk about Shea Stadium uh, with our guest again this week, Matthew Silverman. Again, the book uh, is excellent. It's really good. Uh, if you're not, if you're a New York sports fan or not, um, it's uh, digestible, but it's uh, it's really packed um, deceivingly with lots of great facts and tidbits. Uh, and I learned a lot about Shea and I grew up in the area. Again, it's called Shea Stadium Remembered the Mets, the Jets, and Beatlemania. All right, we get to that conversation in a moment's time, but uh, a little promotional note from our friends at uh, OldSchoolShirts.com this week. Uh, how you doing, PF, PF Wilson, and uh, and friends uh, in Cincinnati, Ohio, great city of, uh, of these here United States. Uh, we've got some great stuff for you there at OldSchoolShirts.com. As you know, lots of uh, awesome shirts, uh, around teams and leagues no longer with us. So, you know, there's virtually every logo out there uh, available. You can search on the site at oldschoolshirts.com by city, uh, by sport, by league even. Uh, but it's also not just sports. It's also things like cultural histories. Like um, I, I see a shirt for Columbia House Records, if you remember sending a penny to them to get your 12 LPs and then figuring out how to get out of the uh, the, the – um, 
<laughs> the contract that you essentially are in to, to buy uh, records at uh, at the bust out retail price. Um, uh, various uh, record stores like J&R Music World in the New York area or uh, radio stations of the past or, or malls or, or all that kind of stuff. It's just a trove of stuff and they keep adding stuff more uh, all the time. It's oldschoolshirts.com. But this week, there's a great Shea Stadium shirt there. It's a, in this sort of baby blue uh, with sort of a contrasted white and orange uh, to uh, replicate the look of the inside of the bowl of Shea. It's great. Um, you'll find that there at oldschoolshirts.com. You'll also find some things that uh, are in and around that time period. The first ever uh, Jets logo from 1963-64 as they were getting ready to transform themselves from the Titans. That sort of li- literally looks like a, a, an actual jet, a white jet with uh, the uh, yellow, excuse me, yellow, green um, letters saying J-E-T-S. Uh, that logo you don't see very much anymore and it's almost very rare. And there's also an excellent New York World's Fair shirt there too for uh, commemorating the 1964-65 World's Fair, which was also part of this story, by the way, because right next door to Shea Stadium was this World's Fair. So in 1964, when this place opened up in 1965, when not only the teams were playing, but the Beatles were playing, you had this World's Fair going on and it was the place to be. Uh, at that time, and the future looked very bright. Let's commemorate all that stuff, why don't you, by wearing some shirts from our friends at OldSchoolShirts.com and use that promo code that we love to give to you and uh, help you save, save, save. Promo code is Good Seats. Good Seats, that's the promo code. I think it's one word, but maybe you could do it two. Uh, try them both ways. But you will get 10% off all of your purchases at OldSchoolShirts.com. High-quality stuff, high-quality people, and... um High quality customers, and we appreciate you checking them out. And um, you'll uh, you'll be glad you did, as they say. All right, let's get into the conversation. Let's waste no more time. Here is our great conversation. Let's remember Shea, the great Shea Stadium with Matthew Silverman. Here's our chat we had just a few days ago. Please, as always, enjoy. I think to to say that you're uh, a New York Mets fan is kind of sort of an understatement and uh, kind of assumed because you have penned a number of different uh, books about uh, Mets fandom. But uh, is journalism your first calling? Uh, Is this your sort of uh, your day job or is this sort of? Well, well, journalism was my first calling. And then um, I found out that I didn't really like it that much. And actually, after reading that book, a book about the Mets, um, the worst team money could buy, and they you know, went into a lot of description about what the life was like of a beat reporter, and that had been my my goal, um, you know, up until then, and I was like, you know, this, this sounds like it really stinks, <laughs> and uh, I kind of changed my uh, trajectory, plus, you know, you're on the road all the time, and, you know, in the best of circumstances, you're working when everyone else is having fun. So I, I kind of tried to, you know, work towards being an editor where you at least had some more control of where you were. But um, then I, I ended up working with um, the people that did the uh, baseball encyclopedia and total baseball and there. And that um, was uh, got me into into book publishing. Got it. So a little bit more stability versus sort of being the sort of a beat reporter and uh, and trying to sort of you know, game 87 of the of a long season trying to get a new angle, a new story, and uh, and some, uh, some Yeah, com- if, some if you, if you made it, you know, it's like, because, you know, um, 
guys that are in the minor leagues. I was I was deep in the minor leagues, and uh, you know you never know if you're going to actually make it. There's only you know a certain number of those those jobs out there. Well, look, we um, we look for any excuse on this little uh, show to sort of get into things, whether they be teams or leagues or even stadia or various other ephemera uh, that is uh, no longer with us in pro sports. We love the defunct. We love the forgotten. We love the relocated, the expanded and and previously domiciled, all that kind of stuff. And uh, certainly we've enlarged our aperture to include things like stadiums and We've had a, an interesting conversation, as, as you probably well know, with uh, our pal Brett Topol on uh, the 1975 uh, unique season of, of Shea Stadium. But but this is, I think, the the, uh, the most comprehensive book that I, I've, I've found out there. Uh, and kudos because it's so extremely well researched and stuff. It, this is this is just a treasure trove. This new book on all facets of Shea, and while it's sort of labeled as being essentially sort of tied in as a, as a history of the Mets. Um, I think you've done an excellent job because you've actually expanded it to all the things that Shea Stadium, obviously the Mets being probably the, the biggest heartbeat of that stadium, but maybe a little bit of a, a background as to sort of why you felt that this beloved and sometimes much maligned stadium needed a book treatment. Well, um, the, uh, the <laughs> would start with, um, they, you know, the, this company had worked with a few times, uh, Globe Pequot, they sort of asked me to do it. And, um, I, cause I would, I don't know if I have the chutzpah to, um, you know, say, how about a book on Shea Stadium that everyone, you know, you know, so many people lament and give a hard time about, but, um, they had done a book on Candlestick and I read that and I'm like, if there's this book on Candlestick, there's definitely, you know, room for one on Shea Stadium, because Shea Stadium is like, Dodger Stadium compared to Candlestick, and um, uh, you know it was really, I was really, um, I guess, touched that they asked me to do it because there's a lot of people out there who um, you know could have handled the topic, and um, it made me work that much harder to make sure that I got stuff in. And there's still, you know, there's no complete list because I looked for for them uh, repeatedly that has like every event that ever took place at Chase Stadium. They just, you know, they made the stuff up as they went along for a lot of it. And um, I'll be like, oh my gosh, there was that event in 1972, you know, and that I just wasn't on any kind of main list and I never came across it in there. But, you know, I tried to get as many different uh, representations uh, of it. Um, To be honest, when I was listening to the thing that Brett did, um... I didn't realize, you know, I knew that Grambling had played there, but I didn't realize the reason that Grambling played there. Um, yeah, I just figured they played there because everybody else played there in 1975. Was they had they used to play at Yankee Stadium every year, and they, you know, they had that game there, and um, you know, so I'm still learning stuff about it. Uh, you know, I, I I have like a little tally in the back of all the you know games that were played just by the. That you know the big four, uh, you know the big four teams that we all know about, but you know there were so many other little events in there, especially since it was a municipally owned stadium, and New York could essentially say, you know, uh, this, they're coming here, make uh, yourself scarce on that night. Well, I'm guessing though, it, it, it this somehow has some overlap with you being a fan of some sort of the Mets. Uh, oh yeah, I, you know, I actually my uh, my. Um, I say it somewhere in the book that my first game was actually a 
Yankees game at Shea Stadium in uh, 1975. Um, old-timers day, actually. And um, I, I went to my first proper Mets game a few weeks later. And, um, you know, it was a nondescript you know, Saturday afternoon game following a twilight doubleheader. So they had this, you know, lineup with Jesus Alou and Gene Klein's, God rest his soul, recently passed away. And, um, you know, some other guys that uh, you, you, you might not remember were Mets in there, but, you know, it was like the whole world opened up to me that day, and uh, the, Mets, the Mets won. So were, were you a Yankee fan essentially going in, or was it just this was the first? No, I, yeah, I really kind of got into the whole thing late. Um, I didn't get. It's 1975 was sort of the year um, I was forced to decide what team I liked, and before then I didn't like either team. I didn't really care much about baseball, and we had, I went to Iona Grammar School in uh, New Rochelle, and we had it was a very baseball heavy school, all boys school, and. Um, we, um, the teacher was going to let us, you know, back then the game started at two, and so it's the last 45 minutes or so of the day. He said, you can watch opening day, uh, but you got to, you know, we only have one TV. You can only pick one game. And there was no clicker, so you, <laughs> so you watched one, and that was it. And we had a tie vote, um, maybe 14 to 14 or something like that. And I, uh, they, you know, everyone's looking at me, and I'm not even paying attention to what they're talking about. And they're like, well, what is it? And, they, you know, kind of put me on the spot, and I didn't really have any inkling one way or the other. And um, I went with Mets because most of the people that were saying I should pull that were were my friends, and a lot of the other guys weren't. So I went with that, and I've been stuck ever since. Yeah, well, there you go. I mean, fate has uh, it played a cruel hand to, uh, for you that day. Um, all right, well, give me a sense then of how you approach a book like this, right? So it clearly seems that chronology matters, right? You're sort of hinting at trying to make sure that you get sort of all the events, perhaps. Is that where you start or how do you start? Because obviously the story predates the the structure by a bunch of years, maybe arguably even to when the Dodgers and the Giants left left town in the late 50s uh, for California. Um, yes, uh, yeah, it does. It does sort of begin there, and actually, I took it a step further, and I even looked up um, in one of the reports they had, uh, you know, the kind of stuff you can find on the internet um, from you know whether that had the geology of uh, of the area, and that it had been a um, you know going back to the ice age that there was all the silt that uh, that that sort of deposited in that little spot, and that's what made all the salt marshes that um, the area became uh, sort of famous for. So uh, I went back to there, and then there was, you know, the uh, the Great Gatsby has that scene about um, the F. F. Scott Fitzgerald used to live just over in Queens and sort of describing his commute. And uh, so I've actually used that you know, in a couple of other Mets books I've done as well because, uh, you know, why wouldn't you? <laughs> Mets aren't necessarily that literary. And you get F. Scott Fitzgerald in there, you might as well try. And um, uh, so I had those two areas. And then, of course, the Dodgers and the uh, Giants. And, uh, you know, their, their leaving is the whole reason the Mets uh, exist. If one of them had left and the other had stayed, there might not be a Mets team but um it was sort of you know sort of a package deal and so they um 
you know that that's how the Mets the Mets came to be, and it wasn't easy to get a team either. Um, the National League really didn't care if New York didn't have a uh, a franchise, but um, the uh, people of New York did, and uh, a lot of work and ended up getting it. Yeah, it's interesting though too. I think a lot of people sort of, uh, uh, especially newer to the the, the Mets uh, fandom and family, shall we say, um, you know, kind of just sort of assume that the the history kind of began with Shea. Obviously, the team itself uh, was granted, and they played a few years in the uh, uh, fast uh, falling apart uh, third version of or fourth version of the, of the, the old Polo Grounds. But it's interesting as well, though, the whole idea about building this municipal stadium um, really was originally centered around this thing called the Continental League, which was, you know, Branch Rickey and and a third league that was, you know, essentially pushing the buttons on trying to expand baseball uh, a little bit faster, perhaps, than it was. And it, it obviously settled into, finally, the Mets being granted an expansion franchise in the National League. But I, I guess the real story of this stadium, the structure, really kind of sort of is bandied about with the guy it was named after, this William Shea character, who was part of all of that mixture, I believe, in the Continental League formation and discussion. Yes, um, because uh, he realized early on, that, well, a couple things. One of them was he didn't want to be the person that stole another team's you know, city's team, like it had just happened to them, which uh, I think a lot of uh, <laughs> cities could learn that uh, that lesson and and try and um, you know go from uh, another another area, and um, and so you know the National League wasn't interested, and they really wanted a National League team because they already had an American League team, but that was not going to do. And when they couldn't get the National League, they decided they would create their own league, and um, you know New York was. Uh, the the principal uh, name in the in the Continental League, which I think they they had, there were like five hard and fast teams they were planning on doing, and I think they had a couple of others thrown in there, but the whole thing existed on paper, and what really uh, and once they hired uh, Branch Rickey to uh, be president of the league, he had been maneuvering and doing all kinds of stuff uh, for years. And made the major leagues nervous. I mean, he is the guy that integrated the league that didn't want to be integrated in any way, um, but did because he sort of made it happen and uh, made sure that uh, that the you know that he and Happy Chandler made sure that 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 it did happen. Um, and you know, uh, not you know, that Jackie Robinson Day is uh, is um, right upon us, and it is um, you know. A, important to to note that it was a really good business decision too. it 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 brought the game to a lot of different people and just you know in a in a different but sort of the same vein bringing a baseball team to new york even if it wasn't um you know a national league or american league team uh, you know because at the time it is uh, funny to note that there was no other league. There wasn't an AHL. There was there, there was an AFL on in the works when the Continental League uh, started coming along, but there wasn't a WHA or ABA or anything like that quite yet. So it was uh, a radical idea, but it was one that was obviously about to crack wide open in a bunch of other sports. So, you know, it, it could have very easily been a third league, which I can only imagine the... Uh, uh, the maneuvering they would have had to get all those teams in the World Series, but you know the AFL was originally a joke when the Jets, uh, the Titans, 
uh, nay, or the Jets, nay, Titans, um, uh, came in, uh, they, they were drawing, you know, 2,500, maybe 10,000 for a, a big game, if there was such a thing. And uh, playing in, a, you know, the, the polo grounds was completely dilapidated, and I think they had to, you know, there was probably like pigeon poop still in the um, press box for the first game. And they also played two years before the Mets. Actually, yeah, the two full, they, you know, 60 and 61, they played before the Mets had ever uh, gotten all their, their, you know, T's dotted and all the scrubs from every other team. Well, it's it's my understanding that the, the stadium proper was essentially born out of the baseball situation and, and the AFL yeah. sort of came sort of a little bit sort of after after that fact um, uh, for sort of maybe somewhat parallel reasons. But um, but it, there was a contingency, I, I, my sense is that I, around 1960 or so, there was this idea of I mean, I, I guess it looks like the National League wanted to sort of just preempt whatever this Continental League was going to be. And part of that, I guess, uh, that process, especially f- to come to New York was somewhat of a guarantee that a stadium would be built. Is that right? Yes, like Shea Stadium is a whole uh, reason d'etre for the Mets, the Continental League, for all this stuff. Like, if that doesn't happen, there's no team of any type. I mean, maybe they, if the Continental League, maybe they could have found some other place to play. But there was no way they were getting, you know, that they were going to get the approval of uh, of everybody for that. And also... You know, um, a, a couple. <laughs> another thing to preface is that the concept of having someone pay for your stadium, you know, uh, uh, who wasn't the owner of the team, was not a, a you know a common thing that it is now. I mean, even when the team is playing for it, there's a lot of uh, other capitalization that goes along with it that has to do, you know, um, that that you know is done. But at the time. It was it was not necessarily done in New York, you know, a sophisticated place. Um, not necessarily that was everybody's first thing. There was a lot of maneuvering behind the scenes in order, you know, by everybody in order to to get this to happen and you know uh, have people sign off on it. You know, and New York is famous because there's you know uh, or renowned because unlike a place like boston or philadelphia or something where everybody is a, or especially in boston everybody is a fan of that team in new york you've got you know 30 percent of the people are yankees fans 20 percent of the people are mets fans and 50 percent of the people couldn't care what less one way or the other um so you have all those people who are you know wondering why you're not putting that money into schools or into all these parkways that everyone's building instead of uh um, instead of this, you know, stadium, and also the concept that you would have a football team that didn't play there or played somewhere else was was ridiculous. I mean, that's what stadiums were for, and it it took until, you know, I would almost say forty years ago, you know, when Camden Yards came in was really, and that's like thirty years ago this year, was really when you, there was no looking back after that. That like new stadiums we're all going to be for one sport or the other. But before that, it was common that you know both teams played baseball and football in the same stadium. It wasn't quite as common that the other team didn't get to play until the baseball team was done. But um, you know, almost every team that had both sports played in the same stadium, except for Kansas City was one notable exception. 
Yeah. So I, w- before we sort of leave the Continental League sort of part of the story, I think it's also uh-huh. it's also important to kind of throw in another character in all of this, and that's Robert Moses, right? So the power broker and Robert Caro. I mean, you know, that's hundreds mm-hmm. of pages of of intrigue about sort of the uh, the most powerful man at that time, and arguably, you know, even still legacy today. Uh, never elected, but uh, was probably most single handedly responsible for. Uh, the, the the goods and the bads, if you will, of the topography of the New York metropolitan area. Um, and and this stadium uh, is certainly part of it, right? We're talking about sort of leading up to also uh, the World's Fair and and, and the, the automobile as being sort of the uh, preeminent or predominant, at least anticipated manner of getting from one uh, borough to another and all kinds of logic challenges there. But I, I guess the question really is with Robert Moses and, and William Shea, um, I, I, I guess I'm really curious, and, and maybe you have an answer to this, maybe you don't, but the William Shea thing, right, he's at once, Shea is the sort of like, uh, uh, you know, uh, yang to the ying of uh, of Branch Rickey with the, the idea of, of founding this third league, yet he's also the guy, Shea, that winds up working hand in hand, really, with Moses to get this stadium built and, if you will, bring the National League to town. So I, I guess the question in there is, and this is my ignorance, maybe, and again, maybe you don't have an answer. Is Shea doing this almost as a front, maybe this Continental League, in order to get the National League team and the stadium built in New York? Or is that just too conspiratorial and, and naive on my part? Hmm. You know, I've, uh, I've never heard that, but, you know... Um... At a later time, I would say, you know, even 10 years later with all the maneuvering that went around with Yankee Stadium and Giant Stadium and all the stuff that led to, you know, Shea being the place to be in 1975, there would be more to it. But I think part of it was that, you know, he was a a big sports fan. He played basketball at Georgetown. Uh, He had owned some piece of one of the, I think, AAFC, you know, uh, second football league. Sure. uh, you know, was a sportsman type, but was more of a civic leader. I mean, he really put his um, legal practice on hold, and he was, a, you know, uh, one of the big firms in New York And uh, in order to do this, because it took all of his time. You know, <laughs> when you needed to look something up, you had, you know, your secretary and three other people go through the files to find it, as opposed to look on... Uh, on the World Wide Web or something like that, you know, he that they put all their dis, uh, everything they had to it, and he'd also been appointed more or less by Robert Wagner, the mayor at the time, who still had egg on his face from, uh, you know, you would say Robert Moses running the Dodgers out of town, and in 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 the same capacity running the Giants out of town because the Giants went lock, stock, and barrel out to California with uh, the Dodgers. So th- this almost seems almost parallel to what I would argue um, uh, smaller markets around the country that had not sort of benefited yet from what was going to be a, a, a large, expans- expansive and challenger league thing in, in, in uh, well, possibly with baseball, but certainly in football and other sports and stuff, um, where a lot of these cities, Kansas City and Minneapolis, St. Paul and you know, Denver, they all sort of looked upon, you know, either baseball or football or preferably both or even basketball and hockey, for that matter, as being validations of major league status. Right. Hence, going after uh, not only those that kind of status and those kind of those, those kind of uh, opportunities, but also the stadiums and the uh, infrastructure needed to woo and cajole 
uh, said to come. But in New York's case, right, this is almost a, um, I don't know, a, uh, a getting t- uh, two franchises for each, if you will, because, hell, we're New York. And number two, um, you know, we need to make up for lost time here because our market is outsized and and we should be satiated with with more, you know, more sports goodness. And, and we've got the resources to do it. Yeah, and, and New York had had, um, you know, they did have three baseball teams, but they only had one of the other sports. Uh, you know, there was only one football team and one basketball team and one uh, baseball team, uh, one hockey team uh, for, you know, a good long, a good period of time in that whole, you know, uh, from World War II to the, you know, Mad Men era. There was really only one team until um, the, you know, uh, people started um trying to find a way to get uh, the National League back in town. Uh, and because even then, you know, a lot of Yankees fans uh, and Mets fans just don't see eye to eye. But it was even more so because, you know, all three of them hated each other, um, you know, hugely where there might be, you know, if, there, if there's so many Dodgers and Giants World Series that maybe one would root for the other in, in a, you know, devil's bargain kind of a thing, but because they, they hated the Yankees so much. And baseball was, you know, was so big, people might be, you know, now listen, like, so what? There was one baseball team. You know, it's not even that big of a thing, but it was a big thing. It was, it was the sport. Football had just sort of come into its own and still had a long ways to go. Uh, you know, it really didn't. Uh, the, the, you know, until Joe Namath arrived, um, and also not to get ahead of ourselves because he's a big part of the Shea story, sure. uh, that it was sort of a one-team league, and baseball was was the sport. And in the '60s, it started to change, and uh, you know, to, to to what we have now, where you know, uh, football is definitely number one, and everything else is you know, at this point is sort of jockeying for number two, even with, you know, our, I know our family's gotten very into hockey in recent years just because it's such a great game to uh, to watch. So it's probably fair to say that the Mets of the franchises of the two, the, the Titans becoming the Jets and the and the newly crafted Mets, the, the Mets were really the kind of, shall we say, primary tenant in the beginning of things. Is that is that fair to say? Oh yeah, and, and like the entire time the Jets were there, they were the second tenant. Um, you know, even uh, though Shea always. and and and, uh, and Moses were, were were couching this as a municipal stadium of multiple benefits. Yes, yeah, so, you know, and and, and you know, until Joe Namath came there, the Jets were a complete afterthought, and you could even make that argument that they were still a little bit that way until they. Won the Super Bowl, and and before that, they won the battle with the NFL. That you know, once Namath was there, it was hard for the NFL to say, "Well, you know, this is just going to go away." You know, they're not going to make it. You know, they're going to be like, you know, if you're old enough to <laughs> remember it or heard about it, you know, the USFL that they kept saying, "Oh, it'll go away," and and uh, it did, uh, but not for you know. Uh, for reasons that are too numerous to go into here, but, um, you know, uh, that it was no, you know, the Jets, the, the Titans, which was the, you know, the, what the team was called, they got a make of, they were made by the AFL um, moving into Shea Stadium, and the AFL itself took on a new light. I mean, Shea Stadium, or Polo Grounds, was one of the least, 
populated stadiums during the AFL's first couple of seasons. And then, you know, first couple of years at Shea was pretty good, you know, it was better attendance. But then once Joe Namath got there, it was insane. Uh, and I think once Shea opened, it, they, you know, Shea had better attendance than any team in the league. And then Joe Namath just made it, uh, you know, a, a sellout, more or less. Yeah, and there's also sort of that uh, that uh, uh, new car, uh, new stadium smell. And yes. Fun, right? So, so and, and look, I think it's also really important to understand. Obviously, it, my sense is that it was originally scheduled to kind of open up in 1963, but by happenstance, I guess, and, and delays, and maybe more for, fortuitously, it opened in 64, which was literally five days either after or before the opening of this semi-non-official but still world-renowned, quote-unquote, 1964 World's Fair just literally steps away. So it kind of a – talk about a magical time, I guess, to be an, an, a New Yorker and having a brand-new fresh stadium, two basically relatively new teams in the top two outdoor sports – and the the world basically knocking at your doorstep with just this fascinating and still talked about today world's fair yes and uh you know, one of the things that i uh hadn't really had to you know look into too much was how the world's fair did or you know robert moses's um part in it but you know since it was just really on the stadium i thought it was worth looking into and i didn't realize until i started researching this book that you know, uh, it was not a success. The first year, um, Moses, who rammed it through, they were, you know, the, the World's Fair was essentially telling him, no, you just had one. There's another one going to be in Canada, and there's, you know, this, this, and this. And he didn't, you know, listen to any of it. And as a result, did not get a lot of the European uh, support that you would normally get for that, that kind of a thing. You know, and also keep in mind, this is when color TV was like a new thing. And... People like new stuff. That was what you know. People liked about Shea. It was new. If you tried to build Camden Yards in nineteen sixty, in nineteen sixty-two instead of nineteen ninety-two, they would said, "What is this stuff? You know, we want something new and modern. You know, this is this is the space age. This is you know the Kennedy years. Um, you know, they wanted something that was brand new, that was different, that was you know sharp." Sharp looking, you know, you know that was neat. With all the, um, you know, the, a lot of those stadiums in that time were all the same dimensions, which also made it easier to, you know, for changing it around for football um, as you know as it, as it came up. Um, the one thing uh, that they didn't do, um, only probably only because it hadn't been invented, was they didn't put astroturf in, and M. Donald Grant for. Um, all that he did to, you know, hold back the Mets over the years was adamant that he would not allow, you know, he would stand on his head to make sure there was no AstroTurf there. And apparently the Mets did have enough pull that they were able to keep that from happening. Plus it was spending new money, which at the time, um, you know, probably wasn't popular either. Well, so describe a little bit for our for our audience who maybe of a different generation or two or, or just, don't, you know, didn't grow up in the New York area or whatever. Uh, uh, sort of the um, the unique uh, standout uh, features of this, I guess it was called Flushing Stadium for a while before it was renamed Shea, but I, I, I certainly p- part of it was the, the suspension or the the, uh, the architecture uh, didn't have any posts and, and obstructions. And that yes, that was a big deal. 
it wasn't uh, fully enca- it wasn't fully encapsulated like a like a donut like the the successor multi-purpose stadiums were but what were some of the sort of features that were kind of the selling point that made it truly modern circa mid six early 60s well you know and it was uh it was new <laughs> that was really important plus that. it had <laughs> it could it could be made into multiple sports you could have a you know they did briefly talk about a dome but um you know that kind of just went away. Uh, plus, it was going to cost a lot more. And you know, at the time, no one really knew if a dome that size was you know going to work anywhere but on paper. You know, the Astros get credit for doing that as well as the AstroTurf. Um, but what the Shea Stadium had it it had uh, you, you could walk through. Um, you, you know, you could walk all the way around under sort of underneath the stadium you could go from the bullpens all the way under the stadium uh, you know uh, i i you know, batting cages were not quite the thing but you could you know make some ad hoc bp in there um there's a great story uh, from skip lockwood's book that i borrow about how he got he became a met in the middle of a doubleheader and um i think jerry kuzman was getting shelled and they, you know, they they drove him around and they took him to the Expos um, locker or the, the Expos bullpen and like pulled a fast one on him. And before he knew it, he was warming up and he was in the game. Um, but it had it had things like that that were uh, that were state of the art, you know. And the it being uh, asymmetrical was a selling point. It looked very clean, you know. It had this that I don't know if you call it Art Deco. I'm I'm trying to remember what the Word is, but you know that that funky um, uh, uh, panels on the outside of the stadium that uh, you know were really um, uh, distinct. And I remember, you know, as a kid going to the games, and that's what was on there. And then after uh, the team was sold in 1980, um, you know, I lived in Westchester and White Plains, and so I didn't really drive by there very often. I didn't know until we went to the game. That they had taken them all away, and you know, and that was so distinctive. You could drive by there and, you know, see it glinting in the sun for for miles on the way into the city, or 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 you know, on the way to Long Island or the airport or whatever. And you know, they had a lot of touches like that that were that were you know that were nice, but you know, it wasn't overly frilly because it you know, it also had one thing I, I should let it uh, let in on is that it had all those escalators. People didn't want to walk. They wanted to ride, glide in the escalators all the way up to the top. And anyone who, you know, went to the upper deck from the lower deck could do that. Or, you know, you could go up uh, the ramp all the way to the top without really having to take any steps, which, you know, they weren't really thinking about people who were in wheelchairs or, you know, handicapped or anything like that at the time. Uh, but it was cool to do. You know, you didn't have to worry about people falling on the, you know, stumbling out of their drunk or after some, you know, ecstatic Mets win or something like that. Um, Although they did have a couple of people that did fall from the um, escalators. uh, And they, you know, if you ever went uh, coming back from down the upper deck and you didn't walk down those those things that they often would have them open, those did not work going down. You had to walk, physically walk down the escalators coming down. It's, they were steep. Uh, yeah, the yeah. Well, the the um, uh, it's also uh, unique, I guess, at the time. I mean, look, a couple of things. Number one, 
It's also uh, shifting the center of sports gravity, shall we say, further mm-hmm. away from, say, Manhattan, right? So, you know, th- this is this is very much public policy and and uh, uh, you know and uh, and futuristic thinking about sort of uh, major events and stuff. And you're w- between the World's Fair and and Shea. I mean, this is putting you know literally and figuratively putting Queens, you know, uh, elevating it on the on the 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 social map of New York, if you will. Um, and also, too, probably aided and abetted, and I'm sure there was a coordination of some sort for this, by uh, ready access to public transportation, namely uh, the MTA and um, uh, w- with a little bit of a, a a walk, the Long Island Railroad. That didn't hurt things either, I guess, when trying to convince people of, of its convenience, despite it being so distant, so to speak, from Manhattan. Yes, and, uh, and with it having... Um you know, it also opened things up because uh, even Yankee Stadium on uh, the polo grounds didn't have any parking. And one of the things they wanted to do was have people drive. You know, that was you put in all these parkways, you guys, <laughs> you better have people driving around. And that enabled, um, you know, to you to use it. Uh, it was, um, you know, like I said, I grew up far enough away where public transportation was more of a nuisance than it was. You know, you could drive there in like 25 minutes from where I grew up, and it was just easier to drive. But at some point, I would say like in the 90s, that it suddenly, you notice that there was just so many more people taking public transportation for what you know for wh- whatever reason, or maybe it was just because I was getting older and noticing that kind of thing. But, you know, um, it, uh, that, it seemed to change over time. And at City Field, it's even more so now that a lot of people take uh, mass transit and have you know been taking it now for generations, and uh, it really you know you might not you know Robert Moses gets a lot of grief for a lot of the things he did that weren't beneficial to uh, a lot of neighborhoods in New York that got gutted uh, to make all the parkways that he insisted on, and um, you know turning Shea Stadium from the uh, or the land on Shea Stadium it used to be a, a ash dump, and that's how they they filled in the. Um, uh, filled it in. It used to be, you know, uh, uh, marshland and, uh, you know, turned it from a garbage dump into, you know, this excess land that they were trying to pawn off, uh, to, you know, this place that, uh, is the jewel of the outer boroughs, you know, uh, you know, at least where at least it was for a time and, uh, really changed, you know, some of the dynamic, uh, you know, and, and by having the Mets there, you know, you know that had to have some. Uh, you know that led to the Islanders being there, and the Nets used to play out on Long Island as well. Whereas I think before that, you know, well, people wouldn't have thought of that, or you know, it uh, uh, might not have worked, or people, you know, you know, people just thought differently about this stuff um, then. And I think the era of of Shea and when it came around was people changing their minds, realizing that this isn't just some rich guy sport. This is a way to get a lot of things done and, you know, make it a part of public policy and keep people uh, entertained. Which, uh, how, you know, how, important. how would you describe the, the Mets and the Jets in their first couple of years, maybe even during the course of the 60s, as co-tenants? Obviously, we know who was sort of leading the dance uh, between the two, but... Uh, was there any friction along the way? Uh, how were the schedules coordinated, if at all? Could there be any overlap? I suspect in the beginning, the first couple of years, uh, there was uh, there wasn't any overlap, right? 
I mean, in terms well, of the thing, the thing that really made it um, different, because uh, I think when Shea opened the NFL and the AFL, they might have been still playing 12 games, but the season didn't begin until like mid-September. So, there, you know, the t- football team opens its first couple of games on the road. It's not that big of a deal. Um, where it became a big deal was the Mets had a couple of Octobers, where I think in you know '69 the Jets had a bunch, and they and the Jets were you know the defending NF you know Super Bowl champions, and they're playing all their games on the road, but um, to, to open the season, and then later on it does benefit them because they've suddenly got like six out of seven games at home, uh, as the schedule gets tougher and you know the games are more important, and uh, but when this NFL switched to 16 games and suddenly um, Labor Day is the opening of the NFL season, and there's still a good month of baseball to go. That's when, you know, they started uh, going to court, and eventually there was a little leeway given, and the Jets opened, um, uh, you know, on, I, thought, I remember my brother going, I think it was the first uh, game uh, opening day that they'd had in the uh, beginning of September. And so, the, you know, the Jets had the honor of, having the horrific traffic with the U.S. Open <laughs> instead of the Mets. Well, there you go. And that's uh, so, so that's the gift that keeps on giving, right? <laughs> Generation yes. later, right? Yes, and, and that's one of the things, too. Is like, uh, again, for years, I would be like, oh, I can't. I don't want to go to a game in the end of August or early September because of that. But I noticed as years went on that there was less of a, a you know, once in a while you'd hit a real traffic jam, but there were so many people taking public transportation that it wasn't, the three-hour drive from, you know, three hours to drive 20 miles that it had been, um, you know, like in 86, I would leave for one, you know, I guess the games are 130 or so. If I left at 1030 from my house, I would get there in the first inning because the traffic was that bad. And then once you got there, there was no place to park. You had to park, you know, somewhere (laughs) that you weren't even sure what town you were in. Well, all that said, uh, you know, and look, I, to this day, getting to, I don't know, JFK from Manhattan is still an ordeal, right? But uh, yes. I, that, that's the quintessential <laughs> New York experience, and uh, that's why New Yorkers love to hate it. Um, but so I, I get the sense, though, that, um, I don't know, baseball purists, right, probably saw f- opportunity with this new stadium, but also probably didn't like, I don't know, the just the, the sheer scale, I guess, of the four or five or six layers or levels of this stadium. And, and uh, how about the, the outfield, right? Which this was not a, while this was multi-purpose as a stadium and maybe sort of at the vanguard of that sort of phenomenon circuit, the, 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 as the rest of the sixties sort of played out, it was not fully enclosed. Um, that that yeah. sort of hulking sort of five tier structure kind of just created sort of this, I guess you could kind of describe it as sort of as a large letter C. Um but that yeah. also brought with it some problems now, didn't it, in terms of, of noise from a, a certain airport nearby and also notoriously, on many occasions, wind, right? Yes. The, you know, going to a Mets game, uh, you could go to a, like a day um, you know, where it's 75, 80 degrees. You might even have shorts and a T-shirt on and not, you know, and not even think of bringing a jacket unless – You'd been to a few games at that Shea Stadium. You know, if you're sitting in the in the shade, you could freeze to death on an 80 degree day because of the wind, because you know of of many different you know just where it was built. 
it was, uh, you know, there's, <laughs> there's a lot, you still feel it today at City Field um, that it can be beautiful in the sun and absolutely frigid in, in the uh, shade. You know, not quite to the extent of candlestick, but, you know, if even for years, uh, even into the 80s, the Mets' first homestand was often all-day games. They would have, you know, they they might throw one night game in, of on a, maybe a Friday night or, or or Thursday or something like that. But they played day games because they knew it was going to be cold, and um, they probably knew the games weren't going to mean that much. So everyone might as well be be happy um, because the weather was was iffy there uh, at best. You know, it's just it's a tough place to build uh, to have something, but. You know, that's where the, you know, it's New York. That's where the available land was, kind of like, you know, Candlestick. They did have some other choices, but they didn't have that many choices, and that's kind of where it ended up. Well, it had a super high upper deck for sure, but I, I'm guessing, too, that that, that that expansive outfield was largely the result of this fa- the fact of the stadium being designed, essentially, as multipurpose for, mm-hmm. in this case, football, right? So I, I guess purists kind of had a, had a field day, uh, pardon the pun, uh, about sort of just how expansive that outfield was relative perhaps to, or or even the the foul territory, right, uh, 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 until the reconfigurations after the Jets left down the road. Well, the you know, foul territory was not that crazy because some of the, you know, the stadiums had, uh, had a lot of foul territory. Um, but um, compared to, you know, what a stadium is now, it did have a lo- an awful lot of foul territory, and you know, showing how much uh, how different the game was that it was sort of considered a hitter's park a little bit initially, um, or you know, at least people thought of it that way until you know the late '60s came around, and then the Mets got that really good pitching staff, and then suddenly nobody was hitting uh, at Shea, and especially the Mets, and uh, you know, it was um, uh, the outfield was was big. It was, uh, you know, it, the, the dimensions weren't as, weren't that big initially. They pretty much stayed the same the entire time they were there. But it just goes to show how much the rest of the game changed. You know, even St. Louis, which I thought was one of the great home field advantages when the Whitey Herzog had the team there and built the team around that, and they were almost impossible to beat in St. Louis, especially. Um, and then they got this uh, home run hitter, and suddenly all the uh, the fences are in. And the team wasn't as, wasn't nearly as good, uh, and the, and the, you know that wasn't just same to the Cardinals. I mean, you look at Yankee Stadium; they moved. They, you know, they always talked about how deep it was in in left center and all that. And by the last few years at Yankee Stadium, it wasn't taking uh, you know a, a mammoth shot to get the ball out in left center. Uh, you know, you were seeing line drives go out that you know weren't even that high. Um, but uh, you know, the the game. The game sort of just changed uh, along with it, and that took uh, a lot of the um, a lot of the uh, you know the 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 way that people viewed it, and also the way that people viewed it from being this you know state of the art stadium, um, as Brett you know you know pointed out um, with his with his book on the '75 season that after that the the stadium was never really quite the same. It just was completely abused and. Um, you know, uh, Pete Flynn was a great groundskeeper to keep it as in, in as good a shape as it, as it was.
right, what's this? LinkedIn jobs. Hey, these days it can be hard to find and hire the right candidates for your small business. That's why LinkedIn jobs made it easier to find the people that you want to talk to faster and for free. Create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn jobs to reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network of over 770 million people. My goodness. Focus on candidates with just the right skills and experience and use screening questions to get your role in front of only the most qualified. Then use the simple tools on LinkedIn jobs to quickly filter and prioritize who you'd like to interview and hire. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus the leading competitors. Yes, that's, it's no surprise, friends, that LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates that you want to talk to faster. Of course. Well, did you know that every week that nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Come on. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash good seats. That's linkedin.com slash good seats to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And now back to our conversation. I love the fact in this book, I mean, you go literally quite methodically and chronologically in, in sort of all the m- most important sort of nooks and crannies of, of, of importance of, of things that were going on at the time. But I, I also love the fact that you just didn't sort of keep it just to sports. You also, and rightly so, and I think it's kind of hard to avoid, right? Bring up sort of the the concert uh, that sort of, I don't know, put, I don't know if they put the Beatles on the map here in the United States, but they certainly, almost, it almost felt that way. Uh, when they came around for their outdoor tour. And, uh, you know, given the fact that you had two brand new teams, a brand new stadium, a World's Fair, and then the Beatles, my goodness, mm-hmm. I think uh, this is probably no more, uh, I don't know, apex-like source of pride, I guess, for uh, anybody involved in the construction of this stadium that, man, this was the right thing to do. Yes, it, uh, you know, the uh, the stadium concert was sort of born there, although... You know, on that tour, they did play in Kansas City, and they played in Cincinnati, and they played in some other places. But, you know, it kind of almost felt uh, that Shea Stadium was built for this. And, you know, uh, the, one of the reasons Shea didn't really have as many concerts as you would think, uh, but they had a lot of high, you know, marquee concerts because the Beatles played there and because so much was said about it that everyone, you know, that was like the top of the mountain, the police ended up breaking up when they went to Shea because they were like, well, there's really nowhere else to go. And even the Beatles, uh, you know, John Lennon said uh, years later um, that that was uh, sort of the, the top of the mountain. And, uh, you know, after they did that, they, you know, as a year later, uh, you know, after playing Shea one more time, they went out, uh, played their last concert at uh, Candlestick, which has probably been brought up more times in this uh, discussion than it has in the last 20 years in the rest of the world. Um, you know, uh, was, you know, they, they've got the Who played here and the Rolling Stones and Bruce Springsteen. And, you know, there were some other bands that aren't quite as well known today, but were really big at the time. And a lot of that was, you know, Shea Stadium was known to, all these people in England who, you know, don't know a thing about baseball and could care even less and, you know, and didn't care about football either, at least our version of it. And, but they all knew Shea Stadium because that was, you know, the place where the Beatles came in. One of the 
you know, worst sound systems and one of the worst laid out concerts in history. But um, it certainly got the uh, <laughs> got the headlines. No, and it's, that's that's a very important point, right? I think that every, the experience of of those kinds of very uh, let's call them primitive kinds of shows. I mean, the, all of the all of the the lads would would have said that they couldn't hear themselves and all that kind of stuff. But and the, for, also the sound of just the fans and the, the, just the the mania. But I think it's really important. I mean, you brought it up, right? So it it, it almost cemented icon status for the stadium, even though I, I think really in retrospect, especially if you grew up and went to games and and, and withstood some of the um, uh, the issues of said stadium, um, you know, uh, iconic, uh, I, I don't think most people would sort of really in retrospect call it iconic, but in I perhaps more than any of the most memorable, you know, the 86 Mets, the 69 Mets, the, the Jets and the, their Super Bowl year, I, you know, I, probably nothing more indelible or more iconic than that event. And perhaps than the the pixie dust, the halo, the whatever, the, uh, the the vibes of that sort of just lingering on Shea for for all eternity. Uh, again, you know, it's not like um, it was this place that had. Uh, you know, championship teams, crank, you know, cranking through. I mean, they did have, uh, you know, in the '80s they had uh, some really good teams, and there was a lot of excitement there, and it was hard, really hard to get tickets to the Mets. And they were the first New York team to actually draw three million. Was it Shea? And um, but uh, it was, you know, it it uh, it wasn't fancy, and the Mets didn't win that much, but. You know, the ones that they did win, I think part of the, you know, whatever Shea magic there is, made them, made them memorable, you know. They had, you know, they had those two, even the one against the A's with, you know, I, I, I rewatched one of the games, I think it was game three, that the Mets were just snake bit, you know, the, the, the A's were like in a funk because they'd had this whole thing with Mike Andrews, they wanted to strike, their heads weren't in the game, and they were tattooing Catfish Honor as one of the best postseason big game pitchers of his uh of his time and you know play, pitched in plenty of those kind of games and Tom Seaver's pitching and is having an amazing night but uh you know the A's came back and part of it was because the the fans had torn up the field and they had to take some of the grass from the uh uh the warning track and put it on the infield and so the warning track was a little different and uh Don Hahn goes chasing after a ball I think Sal Bando hit and all of a sudden, he realizes he's not as close to the wall as he was, and the ball drops in, and uh, they end up scoring. But the game is tied late, and I'm watching it, uh, this replay of it, this bootleg <laughs> that I got from somewhere. And John Milner hits a ball that hits the brick wall and bounces on the field and comes right back, and it's, you know, holding the single. But it was a tie game, you know, in the eighth or ninth inning. And in the ground rule that they had at the end of the year, that would have been a home run. And maybe the Mets win the World Series because of that, you know, the one ground rule that they ever changed uh, in terms of of uh, the outfield, um, you know, which I tried to uh, point out in the book. And uh, one other thing I did that was kind of fun was I sort of had someone, you know, giving like an, uh, a first-person tour of the stadium, like, in, you know, the height, at its height, like in 1987. Um, you know, when it was, uh, it was packed and you could, you know, throw stuff at the guys in the bullpen and you could sneak, which I did many times. You could sneak from like where the, um, uh, the, uh, diamond club was, there was like a stairwell that you could go down 
and it would take you right to where all of the um, concession stands were. And you could get onto the field level that way. It was a little tricky to do, but you could do it and did it a bunch of times until one day they suddenly had a uh, an usher standing there and the, the jig was up. But it was a great place to go get beer when, when they were, none, of, none of the uh, the beers when the beer lines were very long because you could always grab somebody when they're coming out of that uh, little area. Sure, sure, sure. Well, uh, I, look, we could go really deep on on various Mets and Jets memories, but uh, let's call out some. So, as you were doing this book, um, either known or unknown, how about some um, uh, some standout either stories or unique things either Jets or Mets related or frankly otherwise I I think clearly the 1975 season as we talked about with Brett is certainly one of them I, one little asterisk to that um, which I didn't know until fairly recently is that um, the New York stars of the then fledgling and nascent World Football League um, in 1974 were looking at uh, at Shea to play they ultimately were not able to do it, but you can. Uh, they went to Downing Stadium, which itself was its own disheveled story. And as a Cosmos fan growing up, I could you know I could relate stories there too. But uh, can you imagine though the stars adding to that that craziness in in '75 with a few more games during the summer? You know, I'm sure the Mets would have just had a, a cow or the Yankees too, for that matter. Um, there would have been yeah, there would have been no place for them to play because. Um, I we used to I used to work on uh, this um, uh, preseason magazine, and we actually did a chart of all of the games that were played there that year. And I don't think there was a single day, uh, you know, maybe an occasional off day, but there were no days that there wasn't a team there. Like the Mets would be, and at the time they all played sort of, you know, there's only uh, 12 teams per league. Um, so they all played sort of the same schedule, and you know the Mets are in uh, um, you know, Philadelphia, and the Yankee and the Yankees are playing Boston and New York, and there was no there was no extra time. Even when the Giants played there in '75, they had to play a lot of games on Saturdays because there was no place for them, because the Jets couldn't start the season until October began, and they had most of the Sundays. So there was a few Saturday afternoon games. Uh, that the Giants played, which you know, I, other than you know those late season NFL games they usually play after college is over, I've never heard of an afternoon NFL game played on a, a Saturday unless there was you know some crazy extenuating circumstance. See, I love and, that uh, stuff. That, the the Cardinals and the Cowboys and the Colts all played at Shea multiple times too. Yeah, I love that stuff. The the asterisks are what we're really interested in, is that that kind of stuff. And that year was absolutely full of it for for, for that stadium, for sure. I I could even see some people probably try to sneak in and try to stick around for the next game the next day because it it had to be an amazing, interesting, and exhausting time for everybody involved. Yes, and Shea was, uh, you know, um, I go into it a little bit, but it was, you know, I – I never fully snuck into Shea Stadium, but I know many people that snuck into it, including like, you know, during the 1986 World Series. And uh, it wasn't, you know, uh, Fort Knox, I guess would be the way to say it. And um, I did a book, um, 100 Things Mets Finch and Known Do Before They Die, where I, I did like a tour of all of the decks. And, you know, that essentially for, mu- for much of its run, maybe until the last eight or ten years, Maybe when they you know picked up again in the late nineties, um, the security started coming down a little harder on where you could sit. But before then, you could as long as you weren't glomming someone's seat in the orange seats down by the field, 
you could sit most anywhere you wanted that someone wasn't already sitting. You know, the the ushers kind of had a whole separate economy based on where you would do it. And if you there was a seat that wasn't popular, you didn't even have to go to the usher. You just sit down. And, um, you know, that was great. And one thing that I miss about Shea and a lot of the, you know, that the new stadiums don't have is they have staircases going up and down. You can't go from the right field foul pole all the way around, which could take an entire inning to do. And, um, you know, if you had bad seats in the corner, you could kind of just walk around and, you know, catch, you know, at a big moment in the game, be standing right behind home plate, you know, you know, a hundred feet from the, uh, from the back of the catcher, you know, uh, walking, walking past, there was nothing to stop you, which was made those seats that were in front of them. Um, I had a friend who had season tickets and he, he gave me the, the honor of going down and, and picking them out while he was, uh, away in law school. And, um, that was one of the things that we decided not to do. You know, the seats look great, but when people are sitting in there, that place was completely different. And even those, you know, seats that were pretty good in the, you know, field level, you, you, you had to crick your neck a little bit. And if someone could, one person could sit there and block your, your view of the game, you know, across this wide expanse of people, if one person was sitting in the wrong spot or was an extra size or something like that, you could, or was wearing an extra big hat or something, you're, you would be looking at them more than you'd be looking at, you know, Dave Kingman or David Wright or whomever. Any any particular uh, events, either uh, related to the to the the Jets or the Mets or or otherwise, that stick out in your mind that fans who may be either new to the story or don't even know about the stadium might be either, either surprised about or you found were surpri- was surprising or or frankly you want people to know about that most people don't. Huh. Let's see. There was, um, you know, that uh, that Banner Day. Um, I'm not sure if they're bringing it back again. But until, you know, the Mets were like the last team that had a scheduled doubleheader, and it was because of Banner Day. I think it was finally in 1988 they made it a single game, and it lasted, you know, a few years after that. But, you know, I was, uh, I never made a banner, but I thought it was, you know, great to go watch. Uh, one year when the Mets turned it around, uh, 84, and people were so ecstatic that the Mets actually had a good team, and were, they were in first place on Banner Day. And it was a big series against the Cubs, and they actually had to stop people because it had already been going on for like an hour and twenty minutes, and the Cubs had to fly, and you know, and it was a getaway day. <laughs> and it's like, let's go, we're here to play baseball, people. Um, that that was that was great, and you know, seeing all of the uh, uh, banners come by, that was kind of resplendent. And, you know, it was like uh, it was like a giveaway. It, Another thing was that they had didn't have that many giveaway days, but they had a lot of days where you could kind of participate like that. There was, you know, a picture day, um, uh, you know, other. I'm surprised they didn't have like write your your you know your your favorite player a a, a note day. Uh, you know, they had uh, they and they gave out batting helmets and uh, you know occasionally they gave out bats, but that was really kind of a Yankees thing. And although I do have a bat I'm looking at here from Edgardo Alfonso that was, uh, um, I think in the late nineties, they had, uh, they had Edgardo Alfonso day, bat day. That was an actual bat. And the following year, the last game of the year, because it had been rained out earlier, the Mets, uh, won on a wild pitch to earn a spot to go to the one game playoff. 
against uh, Cincinnati, and it was you know they were they were flying to Riverfront Stadium, so or whatever they were calling it then. Um, so people were walking out, and they handed them all clubs on the way out. They weren't you know they weren't full size bats, but they were you know baton size. And uh, you know it was like oh you know this is a great day, and uh, you know, here's a little uh, I've got I've got that sitting in my uh, office here too. Um, you know, little things like that. Um, uh, they had just these weird giveaways that, um, I remember they had Irish night. They used to have these, these international days where in a, probably in the late nineties was when they had most of them, uh, maybe early two thousands and they would have different nights for different ethnic groups. And Irish night was always a big night. And sometimes they give out a hat. Um, you, you get a green hat or something that was Irish in nature. But one time they gave out um, Irish Spring at the end of it after uh, and, you know on a, a particularly hot night, and <laughs> handing out handing out soap to everybody. And uh, you know this person behind me walking out was like, I think I've I don't think I've ever been so insulted in my life. You know, like you stink. <laughs> here's, here's some soap. Um, and you know little fun things like that. And you know the last game at Shea was. Really hard because it was, you know, a difficult loss. But I thought of all the things that they did, Mets weren't necessarily great at celebrating themselves or, you know, always taking themselves as seriously, I think, as their fans took them. And they did a great, I thought they did a great job on the last day of the ceremony, not of losing to uh, the, the Marlins. But uh, that was a really great ceremony and having the um, everybody touch home plate, uh, I guess it had happened before, but I never really paid attention to it. I mean, when you're on Willie Mays, who could barely see, is bending down to, to touch it, you're like, this is this is serious stuff. And uh, uh, for all the, the difficulties that happened that day, I thought that was one of the you know, better moments that Shea had, and you know, it would only if they had won that game or the game had meant absolutely nothing, it would have probably been uh, uh, much better remembered. And you know, the number of games I've been to at City Field that were really must must be games, you felt a genuine buzz. You know, involved either Matt Harvey during his little run, and uh, which was short lived, and. Um, the first game of the World Series. There was a definite buzz there, but uh, and maybe with, you know for those playoff games. But I don't go to as many games as I used to. I have to admit. But um, you know, I used to go to 20, 25 games at Shea every year, and probably went to 20 for at City Field when it first opened. But uh, Shea, when it was a big game, there was nothing. Uh, you didn't have to tell everybody. The place was suddenly packed with 55,000 people. And that place would be swaying, um, you know, at all the all the big moments. And sometimes when people were bored, they'd, they'd make the stadium sway too because they could. And I, and I suspect that uh, the '80s in particular was was a, a high time, right? Uh, uh, given just how 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 good the team was, and obviously the '86 series and all that. But let me um, let me just end with sort of this, I guess, this sort of uh, area, this kind of question, because it's always sort of fascinated me. Is 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 in uh, 83, 84, right? So the Jets uh, leave for the somewhat siren song of domiciling with the Giants across across the way in the in the quote unquote Giants Stadium, being the second tenant there. 
Uh, they just couldn't use uh, get get used to being the second tenant in places. But uh, I digress. As as a as a former Jet fan, I could I can I can go I could wax uh, philosophical about that. Um, but I, I it, it, explain that sort of that year and that scenario to me because was that kind of like okay, good riddance, and 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 was it now more palatable, I guess, for the Mets to be the only, if you will, game in that stadium. Uh, to be able to at least not have to worry about, um, you know, transforming the field and all the logistics that are needed to kind of, you know, uh, uh, play host to two different types of events during the course of a year. And they can maybe more focus on just baseball only stuff and and not worry about all the rest of it that, that the Jets brought along for the ride. Well, you know, they still had uh, the police concert, which I went to um, and in 1983 and I was going off to, to college then, and I, I was just thinking about it today. And, you know, I'm sitting there, and it's hot, and I've got this warm beer in my hand, and I'm sitting in these seats that are terrible for baseball, football, or a concert. Yeah. In, you know, in the sort of, you know, in the low section, way in the back with the overhang. And I'm just like, gosh, I wish I'd the last place Mets were here. <laughs> I would be enjoying that so much more. I'd rather be seeing them. And,. You know, I, I, the Mets, uh, Nelson Doubleday made. They, they were able to. They were able. The groundskeeper. I mean, they were able to kind of at least maybe focus more on baseball then, as as sort of. Yeah. Like, right. And the, and the field when the Mets did come back because it rained during the concert a little bit was an absolute disaster. Balls were bouncing off it, you know, like a Super Ball. Fortunately, the Mets weren't any good, so no one paid that much attention to it. But it was, um, you know, uh, like playing on a, a bunch of cut up carpet, um, and. You know, I I, did, I I never had a problem with the Jets really being there because um, it kind of made it. I thought it made it a little more fun. I always liked the two teams in one stadium. I thought, you know, to be honest, I've always thought that having two stadiums for two different teams was seemed seemed kind of wasteful to me. At least the Jets and the Giants played in the same stadium, but um, it's more of a mecca, right? I mean, in, in some respect, a year-round mecca because you had stuff. Yeah, going it, it made it. Uh, you know, a destination place, and I thought it was a little bittersweet when the, you know, when the Jets left, um, and you know, in typical Mets slash Jets fashion, you know, they they had uh, they kind of just just got blown out by uh, the Steelers. Ended up being Terry Bradshaw's last game too. He hurt his he threw a touchdown pass and hurt his elbow on the play and never played again, and. Um, uh, but it was, I watched it when it was, uh, while it was happening. It was, cause it was one of those Saturday afternoon games late in the year. So it was on national TV, um, and I was able to watch it from school. And it was, it was kind of sad. And the people were, you know, I, I watched, they, they have a really good, um, NFL a network did a, did a, uh, something on that, uh, that game and really kind of, you know, captured it and some of the stuff that I wasn't getting because I wasn't in, in New York at the mo- at that moment. Um, that it was kind of sad, and you know they're moving over to uh, you know to go play, be like you said, be second fiddle to uh, another team. At least you know the the Mets aren't in the same uh, you know aren't in the same sport. You know you you have the place all to yourself for a few months out of the year, and uh, you know it was it was uh, kind of fun. But um, and I think the, you know the players kind of like having you know some some overlap. You know the, the you know as they were. Getting into the 80s, they all didn't need to be sharing apartments, but there was apartments shared by the Mets and the Yankees when they were there. I couldn't get any good stories about anyone sharing them, but you know, a few people said there were, that, you know, that was going on that I talked to, 
But, um, you know, that was that kind of stuff was fun and, you know, made it feel like a professional athlete was was a job. It wasn't some, you know, uh, someone that people would resent because they made all this money. You know, it's someone who got paid more, but their career was usually over by the time they were 30 or 35. All right. Here's my last question. And what do you what do you um, miss the most about Shea Stadium? And frankly, what don't you miss about Shea? Well, the the food would definitely be the thing. Uh, but you know, as Howie Rose told me, it was like you know, I didn't go there to eat. I was going there to watch a ball game, and so you know that that gives it some some hindsight. But the food was definitely questionable, even on a uh, on a good day. Um, they had a thing called the Met Hero that was great well, compared to everything else, but that kind of, you know, there's only certain stands that sold it, and it required a lot of mustard. So that was the only thing I really liked. And uh, I did find an article about the, um, uh, when the New York Times had their gourmet review the food at Jay, which I thought was, was kind of a hoot. And, uh, but the thing I missed the most is, you know, uh, you know, it just was kind of the atmosphere when that that place when you know that team was good. I remember going to my first playoff game after being a fan for like ten years because you know, I'd become a fan in 1975, and they did not make the playoffs until 1986. And then went through all of my uh, you know grammar school, and you know when it, you know when I said in 1975 it was 14 to 14 or whatever tie between Mets and Yankees fans. By 1978, it was like 28 to three. And, um, you know, so there was a lot of moments you didn't think the team would ever be any good. And, you know, uh, it was hard at times keeping the emotions in check going to that. And my first game was the game where Lenny Dykstra hit the home run, which, uh, you know, uh, again, to beat the Astros. And, uh, you know, still probably, and I went to the Grand Slam single game, too, and I would still would put the uh, the... Lenny Dykstra home run game there because they they won the game and the series and the and the World Series, but um, it was just so special because they had not been played there since you know uh, a, a Wednesday Wednesday night or maybe the Thursday night in 1973 uh, for a postseason game with the bunting and everything like that, and fell behind early and came back and uh, won in dramatic fashion and. Um, you know that one. That's the way that place roared, and uh, you know uh, was was remarkable. And uh, you know I've um, uh, always always wished I had I had a chance to go to games one or two or games six and seven in the World Series. And of course, being a cocky Met fan in 1986, I went to games one and two, and always wished that I had uh, chosen differently um, because that. Um, you know, I was always a little jealous of the people that that did go to that one, but you know, as time's worn on, uh, I'm just happy I was alive <laughs> when they won a championship. Because there's plenty of guys uh, and and ladies who are sitting in the stands that haven't had that. So I hope that the Mets, uh, wherever they're playing, will will win one for them sometime soon. Well, I, look, I've got personal memories myself, and uh, uh, my first ever NFL game was uh, at Shea. It was a birthday uh, the gift, and, and sadly, it was um, also uh, memorable for another reason. It was um, the infamous uh, halftime flying air, model airplane uh, exhibition that yeah. uh, bulldozed. Yeah, yeah that, that was something that I did not know about until I was doing research for this book. It was shaped like a lawnmower. 
Yeah, they call it what a what a way to go lawnmower and uh, and and two people were seriously injured. One of them one succumbed to his injuries, and I was literally there with three of my friends, and I'll never forget it. I mean, you there were there were there there was a guy who was just just had a a bottle of bourbon with him, and he was more than halfway through it, and his friends were egging him on, and they he jumped over the fence and grabbed a football from underneath the the jet bench, and and then ran back into the stands, and then all the fans (laughs) were 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 holding back the police to let the guy go. And I, he's probably still running today with that football under his arm. Um, but that was my introduction to football and, and Shea Stadium. And, and, you know, as a kid growing up in northern New Jersey, it was sort of a, a little bit of the wild east, east if you will. Uh, but uh, you, you knew you were in – this was a fans stadium. It, this was like – these were serious fans, regardless of what the, the team was at the time. And you knew that it was that in that respect, it was quite a special place because the fans were really into what, even if the teams sucked, the Jets and the Mets in particular, who you know were generally really good at doing that, um, the fans were there. They were there for a, a good time, and they were they were intense. And uh, boy, that was an experience. Uh, you know, uh, frankly, a memory I'll never I'll never forget. Well, and one thing um, uh, was that the seats were basically on merit. Uh, you know, you had to earn them. Uh, a bank, uh, you know, a banker who complained about how bad the Mets were and no one ever used their tickets, I said, well, give them to me. So I ended up getting these seats right behind the, like, the uh, on-deck circle. And a friend of mine had seats out in uh, the left field part of the same, you know, the same orange seats down below. Much, these, these much different view, but the, the tickets cost the exact same. And on the, the little uh, panel that, you know, said who, you know, and they used to have the panel that said who it belonged to, um, you know, it said how, how long they'd been there. And these people had these seats behind there because they had gotten them in, like, 1978. You know, so those were earned, and my friend had gotten them, you know, in the, in the mid-'90s. Um, and, you know, you moved up a little bit each year. Uh, you know, though, you know, so when people had really good seats, it wasn't because they'd paid this much extra. They had, they had earned it and the seats were priced accordingly. I mean, but the, that guy's seats, I think were, maybe they were 50, you know, 70 bucks, maybe tops. And now 70 bucks, um, you know, for a Saturday afternoon game is going to have you, um, sitting pretty far out there. Yeah, and I remember. Like, the, the, as in with this ridiculous variable price seating, yeah, which no, you know, no doubt. I, I was annoyed me. It's like the Mets are the ones that tell tell you who who uh, is a good team and who isn't. They should wish. Yeah, too bad they can't apply it to the actual Mets team uh, <laughs> yeah. sometimes, right? But uh, yeah, I just remember too the sort of the inelegant sort of uh, uh, these square boxes, right, of four seats, right? Yeah. Where which is odd because if you've got two people or three people or five people, it becomes an odd situation when you're trying to sit together. Yes, I have, and I've actually had that, uh, you know, the way those were set up, keep me from catching a foul ball because they kept you from reaching over, you know, it like had you boxed in depending where you're sitting. You had to sort of sit on the end seat and you had uh, much more dexterity of movement if you want to catch a foul ball. And I finally caught a foul ball after hundreds of games there. Um, in the second game of uh, the last Father's Day doubleheader at Shea, um, when there was about 5,000 people left in the stadium for you know, a game that had been sold out initially. So, you know, just a, a further illustration of how much the game had changed. But I was, I was glad I stayed all the way to the end because that was, that was the only one I got at, uh, at Shea, and it had the little uh, icon on it. Um, 
that the stadium you know they had for that last year. Many thanks to Matthew. Fantastic uh, memories. So many more we could have gone into. Uh, the book, Shea Stadium Remembered, The Mets, The Jets, and Beatlemania. Uh, it is published by our friends at Lions Press, which is an imprint of Globe Pico and is part of the trade division of Roman and Littlefield. Regardless of what brand or imprint you find, get the book. You can find it at all uh, great bookstores and stuff. Um, of course, you can find it on Amazon and a convenient link to Amazon to give us a few uh, pennies, nickels, dimes, even shekels of referral love by doing so at our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode number 257 with Matthew Silverman. You'll find a convenient link there. We'll get a couple of um, uh, of pennies. We appreciate that. And uh, you can also search while you're there at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Every single stinking episode we've ever done. We post them all there. It's a convenient place. Of course, the easiest way, though, to follow us and make sure that you get the very latest episodes uh, is in your feed by following us or subscribing, whatever the, the mechanism is these days to get podcasts. We're available just wherever you can find and tell your friends, for God's sakes. We appreciate that, too. Uh, we can't give you any uh, um, anything but our love and uh, our friendship uh, for doing so. But uh, we appreciate you spreading the word, especially if you like what you hear. Um, let's see. You can follow Matthew uh, at a bunch of places. You can go to his website at Met Silverman. Yes, that's M-E-T Silverman, S-I-L-V-E-R-M-A-N.com, MetSilverman.com. See what he did there. Uh, for all his uh, other great stuff. He's done a ton of um, uh, of books around uh, Shea, but certainly the Mets, a lot of uh, uh, historical and uh, trivia-oriented stuff uh, around that. Uh, there's a Cubs book, a Red Sox uh, by the numbers book, lots of uh, great stuff and um, for you to find there at metsilverman.com. You can also follow Matthew uh, on Twitter at metsilverman, at metsilverman. Um what else? You can follow us on Twitter at Good Seats Still. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. And uh, you can follow our little Facebook page as well there, Good Seats Still Available as well. Would you like to send us some email? Okay. Uh, please do so at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. We appreciate that. And uh, we have a little weekly email newsletter. Check out the website. Find the little tab there for that and just a name and an email address. And uh, you'll know what's coming up. Uh, a few days or even sometimes a few hours before uh, we release it to the uh, general public and uh, you'll be in the know. Uh, thank you very much for listening and thank you, Jerry Payne, of course, for your editorial excellence this week. Uh, until next week, uh, we uh, bid you a fond adieu. Uh, hang in there. Spring is coming, as so I'm told. Uh, until then, say, take care of yourselves and we'll see you. Bye.